so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Well, what interesting times we live in. Parents concerned over what's happening in their kids' schools now find themselves in the crosshairs of a government that uh, really recognizes no meaningful limits on its power. I mean, it's bad enough when it's your local school board that's, that's at odds with parents. Now, shut up, parents. We know what's best. But boy, when it gets to a national level, this kind of thing can get uh, can get really tricky really quick. And I want to illustrate this by giving you kind of the supercut of certain uh, Democratic leaders as, as well as school board bureaucrats and <clears throat> news types on how they view parents. Basically, their message is back off, you terrorists, and hand over your kids. Check this out. Just a few comments of, uh, of how these parents who show up at school board meetings and say, please don't turn my kid into some kind of a racial, you know, identity, you know, caricature. Here's what they think of you. Violent looking, angry, spewing parents outside of these schools. Individuals intent on creating chaos for the sake of creating chaos. These actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism. This becomes a security crisis in a sense for the nation. This may also mobilize even more law enforcement to to be at these meetings. It is dangerous to our children when the parents themselves are the school bullies. I think one of the worst things is the actions at the board meetings. Uh, You know, the, the, the calling of names, you know, you know, tyrant, Marxist, communist. We've never seen anything like we're seeing at these school boards now. What on earth has happened in this country? Sometimes they're not even talking. They are yelling and creating chaos. Things have become so scary at these meetings. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. New laws may be necessary. There's always the possibility uh, that people will face criminal prosecution for this kind of conduct. The FBI and federal law enforcement is tailor-made for that kind of national-level coordination with state and local police. The attorney general has put out a letter They will take actions they take. What does it mean that something that is generally boring and neutral, like a school board meeting, has become a locus for violence? You look at the rage, the anger, you think, what is this doing to the children in those homes and their mental health? We have a board of ed working with the local school boards to determine the curriculum for our schools. You don't want parents coming in in every different school jurisdiction. And they want to shut down our schools and, you know, move kids over to charter schools and private schools um, without the oversight of the state. And that's wrong. Oh, my goodness. 
These parents, they're, they're not just shutting up and doing what they're told. Why? They're, they're pushing back and they're, they're questioning us. And some of them are angry because we're telling them you're not smart enough to, to, you know, to educate your kid. And good gravy. What a bunch of drama queens. And of course, you know, the only word that they didn't use, at least that I didn't hear in there, was uh, that these parents must be engaging in insurrection, since that's the other, you know, buzzword to get people, you know, whipped into a fearful fervor. Holy cow. How did it get to this point? Oh, and the the part about, well, you know, you know, school board meetings are just uh, neutral, mundane affairs. I can assure you as a parent, nothing involving my child's well-being is a neutral or mundane affair. And it's not because, you know, my kids are going to, they're going to know my politics and that's all they're ever going to know. And I want them to, you know, basically repeat everything back that I believe. It's more a matter of, as a parent, I feel a very personal stewardship, not to the school board, not to the governor, not to the president or Congress, but to God. Yeah, to the creator of the universe, who I believe trusted me and my wife with those children and the expectation that we would raise them you know, in righteousness or the, to the best of our ability to raise them to be good, decent, productive people. And I guess we're just supposed to pretend that, you know, whatever's happening in those schools, why, you know, they're calling us Marxists and communists and so forth. Yeah, they're calling you out as Marxists and communists. Is there a reason? I mean, you obviously embrace the, the worldview. You embrace the class warfare mentality. I mean, come on. Why, why equivocate? You should be proud if it's such a great idea. But maybe maybe they realize, well, you know, it doesn't have that great of a track history and there are a few hundred million people that are dead because of you know Marxism, but other than that, it's a perfectly workable kind of system. So I thought this is where I could start today. I just I'm I'm a little bit worked up about this just because the language is so dangerous. We're going to have to have new laws. This violence, <clears throat> it's violent for parents to disagree. It's violent for people to dissent. Isn't it strange how? Power seekers and opportunists just love to play the victim. It's like it's like a mugger breaking down in tears when you tell him, no, I'm not going to give you my money. Or worse, you pull a gun and say, you just made the worst mistake of your life. That's not fair. <laughs> you were supposed to hand it over. So I have a couple of things I want to share with you that hopefully will, will help illustrate, first of all, the depth of the problem, but also I have a very hopeful piece that should help illustrate how much control is actually in your hands. And I want to start with the question, are parents a national security threat? Now, this is an article from Mark R. Schneider from AmericanThinker.com. And he says, in case you've not heard, the United States Department of Justice, or DOJ, has mobilized against a new and unprecedented threat of criminal conduct facing the nation. So grave is this menace that the FBI has marshaled, listen to this list of agencies, the National Threat Operations Center, the DOJ's Criminal Division, National Security Division, Civil Rights Division, the Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, the FBI, the Community Relations Service, and the Office of Justice Programs. Wow. Talk about all the king's horses and all the king's men. What provoked such a massive federal response? Well, 
Mark Schneider says, uh, is it the mass infiltration of our southern borders? Is it cartel criminal enterprises or child sex traffickers or Antifa-inspired riots in our inner cities or the biggest jump in American homicide rates in 60 years? No, he says, sorry. None of these actual woes are considered sufficiently serious for such sweeping federal action. Instead, it's taken something far more ominous, parents of school-aged children. So specifically, the DOJ is worried about vocal parents at school board meetings upset over critical race theory indoctrination being imposed on their kids in public schools. It's true. All of this was outlined in a release from the DOJ's Office of Public Affairs and a memorandum from Attorney General Merrick Garland. Now, supposedly, the DOJ's action was prompted by a letter addressed five days earlier to President Biden from the National School Boards Association, citing what it claimed were acts of violence against interstate commerce by angry parents. Such heinous actions, said the NSB, could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism. So why is that important? Well, we all know. When it comes to terrorism, we take the gloves off. In fact, the U.S. government claims the authority the moral authority as well as legal authority to drone strike and kill any person believed to be part of a terrorist threat or terrorist organization anywhere on the planet. So, yeah, those are pretty serious words to be using. And this, of course, requires a coordinated federal response. The NSBA urged assistance from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, also the uh, U.S. Secret Service the U.S. Postal Service, in order to intervene against threatening letters and cyberbullying attacks. And finally, it urged that federal law enforcement mount Patriot Act investigations against these ostensible parent terrorists. Just another way that the Patriot Act is continuing to bless our lives, you know, 20 years after the fact. Now, by way of reminder... Congress enacted the Patriot Act after 9-11 to stop future foreign terrorist attacks from happening on American soil. And it defines terrorism as unlawful acts of violence or acts dangerous to human life intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or to affect the conduct of government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. All right, well, that, that leads us to the question then, does the shoe fit? Mark Schneider says no. Please. The NSBA letter cited nothing even close to the actual incidents of domestic terrorism, let alone conduct warranting investigations under the Patriot Act. Now, what it did describe were examples of trespass or disorderly conduct and some angry emails. Notwithstanding, the Biden administration and its compliant DOJ went all in. In less than five days from receipt of the NSBA's letter, the DOJ had analyzed, crafted, and issued its response acceding to all the NSBA's requests. Now, Mark Schneider says if that seems fishy, it probably is. Indeed, it appears that the DOJ was just waiting for the right cause celeb to uh, launch an already prepared legal broadside against parents. Now, did the NSBA letter serve as a planned pretext? That's the charge attorney Reed Rubenstein, Rubenstein rather, of America's First Legal Foundation, or AFL, made in a letter to Inspector General Michael E. Horowitz, asking for a formal investigation into the matter. See, according to Rubenstein, in early September, Biden administration stakeholders held key discussions regarding avenues for potential federal action against parents 
with a key Biden Domestic Policy Council official identified as Jane Doe, number one, and White House staff John Doe, number one. He says stakeholders also held discussions with senior department officials and others in the White House separately expressed concern regarding the potential partisan political impact of parent mobilization and organization around school issues in the upcoming midterm elections. Furthermore, alleges Rubenstein, Biden administration officials developed a plan to use a letter from an outside group, not the usual suspects, as a pretext for federal action to chill, deter, and discourage parents from exercising their constitutional rights and privileges. Now, there's more to it. If you're interested, you know, there's actually in the article uh, by by Mr. Schneider at uh, AmericanThinker.com, you can read Mr. Rubenstein's letter in its entirety. Now, Paul Schneider, or rather, uh, Mark Schneider says, where this goes is anybody's guess. But it's interesting how the DOJ is already backtracking due to backlash against what's rightly viewed as a federal government effort to chill the First Amendment protections of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and the right to petition government for redress of grievances. Attorney General Merrick Garland didn't help himself when he appeared to concede during questions from the House Judiciary Committee that there likely was communications between the DOJ and White House on the NSBA letter before the DOJ mobilized. He said, I'm sure that the the communication from the National Association of School Boards was discussed between the White House and the Justice Department, and that's perfectly appropriate. Now, such communication is further evidenced in a string of emails between the Biden administration and the NSBA obtained by parents defending education. There are links in the article to all of those as well. So the outrage over these revelations has been such that the NSBA issued a public mea culpa, flatly declaring, and I quote, we regret and apologize for the letter. Mark Schneider says we can't know if this comes out of genuine regret for their hysterical overreach or if it's a calculated, if not cynical, effort to mollify a now awakened and indignant public. One can only hope that the DOJ will similarly reverse course and issue its own retraction. So far, crickets. Now, Harry Truman famously warned once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it has only one way to go and that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all of its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. Mark Schneider says, uh, well, the Biden administration is that they're eager to bring the weight of the federal government upon parents. Resisting the cult of wokeism sweeping our nation's schools is an ill omen. But he also says it shouldn't surprise us that the people most vocal about the precarious state of American liberty turn out to have been escapees from repressed societies. From Yuri Beb... Be, let me try this again. Bemezov, Beme, Bezmenov, sorry, Yuri, butchered your name there, or Natan Sharansky to Maximo Alvarez or Yonmi Park. They've been sounding the alarm for decades. Oh, and you can also add to that list, Xi Van Fleet, a mother and survivor of Mao's cultural revolution who warned the school board in Loudoun, Loudoun County, Virginia of the device's similarities between critical race theory and Mao's thought police. Soviet dissident and Nobel Prize winner Alexander Solzhenitsyn lamented similarly over America's decline. 43 years ago, 
In an address given at Harvard, he warned, a decline in courage may be the most striking feature that an outside observer notices in the West today. The Western world has lost its civic courage. Now, as with most prophets, Solzhenitsyn was mostly ignored. Yet if there's still hope for America today, it's coming precisely from the very kinds of people the Biden administration seems most ready to silence. Parents acting upon the God-given instinct to protect the lives entrusted to them from the predations of those who mean to harm them. I think that sums it up pretty well. That seems to say exactly what needs to be said. Now, I want to shift from here to a little more hopeful note. There was uh, apparently an op-ed published in the Washington Post that uh, wasn't quite as militant as some of the the various talking heads you heard in the earlier clip that I played for you, but it's uh, nonetheless a couple of education experts who are, well, I'll be generous, scoffing at the idea that parents have any right or knowledge to shape their kids' curriculum. (laughs) Oh, really? Carrie McDonald, who writes for the Foundation for Economic Education and is an excellent source on all matters regarding education and education choice. She has penned a rebuttal to the Washington Post, and she says, Sorry, Washington Post, but parents do have every right to shape their kids' curriculum. She says, We we shouldn't be too surprised that the ongoing exodus from public schools is leading those loyal to government-run schooling to go on the offensive. A new Washington Post op-ed is leading the charge, boldly declaring in its headline, Parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. Now, the two authors, Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, clearly fear the collapse of public schooling if parents gain access to more education choices. So they're attacking parents for having the audacity to think they could actually make such choices. The authors sneer at parents for challenging experts like them who clearly know more about raising and educating children than any parent. Indeed, they scoff at political campaigns that tout parental rights and slogans that suggest parents matter. The writers further allude to ignorance of parents who might have misgivings about their children being taught such things as critical race theory in schools. The Post authors write, in framing our schools as extre- our public schools as extremist organizations that undermine the prerogatives of family, conservatives are bringing napalm to the fight. Yes, it's all your fault, parents. All we were trying to do was program your kids to be good little Marxists. They criticize the, fi- the growing favorability and expansion of, poli- of I'm sorry, school choice policies in many states, including things like education savings accounts, vouchers, tax credit programs that allow education dollars to follow students instead of just funding bureaucratic school systems. And Carrie McDonald says it's understandable that they're on alert. Decentralizing education funding is something that nearly three quarters of Americans now support. So it's no wonder that those scrambling to keep hundreds of billions of dollars in annual taxpayer money tied to government schooling would be quick to throw stones at those suggesting another way. Rather than admitting their greed, she says the Post authors chastise parents for believing that they might, in fact, know what's best for their children or, God forbid, might even have a different viewpoint on education than that which the government and the experts deem proper. When do the interests of parents and children diverge, the authors ask? Generally, it occurs when a parent's desire to inculcate a particular worldview denies the child exposure to other ideas and values that an independent young person might wish to embrace or at least entertain. 
I don't even know where to begin with that. We're just trying to uh, expose your child to ideas and values they might want to embrace or entertain. So is that why my uh, third grader needs to learn that uh, maybe he needs to, you know, cut his manhood off because he might really be a girl trapped in a boy's body? I mean, how far can this be taken? I think we're, we're in the process of finding out. And Carrie McDonald says, you know, these, these authors say this without the slightest acknowledgement that in many of the country's public schools, teachers and staff members are actively inculcating a particular worldview that excludes recognition of other ideas and values, especially those on the political right. It was ideological inculcation that led a Nevada mother to sue her mixed-race son's school over its critical race theory curriculum that elevated racial identity over individuality. And it was also this type of left-leaning indoctrination that led a Rhode Island mother, Nicole Solis, to seek access to public records regarding the curriculum her public elementary school child was receiving. She told Fox & Friends back in June, I was also told that they refrained from using gendered terminology in terms of in general terms of anti-racism. She said, I was told that kids in kindergarten are asked what could have been done differently at Thanksgiving. And this struck me as a way to shame children for their American heritage. Now, the Rhode Island Teachers Union was so angered by this mother's request for curriculum transparency, they ended up filing a lawsuit against her back in August. The Post article, says Carrie McDonald, comes on the heels of one of the largest drops in U.S. public school enrollment in modern history. Catalyzed by the coronavirus response that shuttered most schools last year, the homeschooling rate tripled from its pre-pandemic levels to over 11% of U.S. children. By the way, black homeschooling families led the way, experiencing a five-fold increase in homeschooling numbers in 2020. Other families fled public, public schools for private schooling or delayed early school entry for their young children. And despite schools being open this fall in, for full-time in-person learning, the public enrollment decline continues. Los Angeles Public Schools, for example, lost 4.76% of their student population last year. They've lost 6% this year. Homeschooling remains popular throughout the country this fall, and some private schools report ongoing enrollment increases. Now, Carrie McDonald says the large number of families who fled public schools for private education options over the past 18 months reveals that parents are more empowered than ever to find the best educational fit for their children. They're no longer satisfied with assignments. They want choices. The Post authors decry those choices, saying conservatives want a privatized system, one in which families, not taxpayers, would bear the cost of education and governance would happen through the free market rather than democratic politics. Well, Kerry says the free market expands choices in education offering variety, personalization, and entrepreneur-led innovation, just as it does in all other sectors of the economy. Families have diverse needs and preferences, and one-size-fits-all government schooling or government-run schooling doesn't meet all of those needs, nor does it satisfy all of those preferences. As the Nobel Prize-winning economist F.A. Hayek wrote in The Road to Serfdom, our freedom of choice in a competitive society rests on the fact that if one person refuses to satisfy our wishes, we can turn to another. But if we face a monopolist, we are at his mercy. And Carrie McDonald says parents are increasingly demanding freedom of choice in education, and the monopolists are right to be worried. I think that's pretty good stuff there. 
And I think Carrie's right on the money. And it still comes back to the idea of whose kids are they in the first place? Now, in interest of full disclosure, my wife is a public school teacher. And believe it or not, we don't see eye to eye on on this issue. Sometimes she feels like, you know, you're pretty unfair. You you broad brush, you know, the the teachers or the the teachers unions or staff at the schools. I try to I try to defend myself and by saying it's it's the system. It's the idea that government is running it and that for some people this is their political territory. This is where they find power. It's where they have influence. They have funding via the taxpayers. It's a pretty sweet situation. But it makes me happy to see those parents who actually are stepping up and saying, you know what? You're not bringing my kid. You're not going to have my kid and you're not going to have access to his or her mind. It's it's something that's that's going to be a whole lot tougher as we go ahead. So for those parents who say, look, I'm ready to pull my kids out and do something different. It's a huge sacrifice on their part, but I think they're right to do it. I'm Brian Hyde in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together, and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. 
go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Once again, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders, and this is the America Out Loud Network. So in the first segment, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, kids and particularly parents who are standing up for their kids and standing up against some of the things that experts in certain areas want to teach their kids are being treated as if they are engaging in some form of domestic terrorism. It's weird, but that's where we are. Guess we don't uh, we don't uh, avoid the truth and 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 get anywhere. So here's a question now that that comes up on the heels of that. What can you do to teach your kids to think more clearly and independently? Now I'm convinced this is one of the biggest favors you could ever do for your children is to teach them how to sort truth from fiction. Now obviously it's something you're going to probably want to know how to do yourself. I've got an article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org, Teaching Children to Recognize Propaganda. Now, just the, just the title of that article would be enough, I think, to send some of those, those left-wing experts, you know, into uh, uh, fits of rhetorical incontinence. Oh, that's so dangerous. They're trying to limit these kids' worldviews. Nope. I'm trying to teach my kids how to spot when you are trying to program them or indoctrinate them. And I'm going to humble brag here for just a second. I'm sorry. If this, if this feels like a flex, I, I don't mean to imply that uh, I'm a better parent than you. One of the byproducts of what I do, being a commentator and being someone who's really interested in, in discussing the issues and getting to the nuts and bolts of but what are the principles that underlie this, is my kids have picked up on this over the years. And sometimes it was really troubling because I didn't I don't like it when my kids were arguing with me. I didn't like it when they were thinking clearly and independently about whether or not that request to do the dishes, you know, was a just and rightful and lawful request or not. But I would much rather have kids who had that capability than kids who were just mere heel clickers or, you know, eyes down order takers. And I've been very flattered when my kids come home from school and say, hey, my teacher was talking about this today, and I remembered something that I heard you talk about once, or I, I recognized that they were trying to push this particular agenda. And it doesn't mean that, therefore, my kids now walk in lockstep with me. But they're questioning, and that's the key. They're weighing and evaluating what they are being told. So there's my flex. I'm a very proud parent and very happy that my kids have, have, have developed that ability so let's talk about to Annie Holmquist's article. She says, when the pandemic hit, school went online and learning seemed to be thrown to the wind. As the pandemic stretched on, many teachers were loath to return to the classroom because of apparent COVID fears. Parents began to question whether teachers were really concerned about or eager to foster their children's learning, especially as they could see the learning loss that was happening, or rather the uh, learning that often wasn't happening at all. 
but such fears were groundless, according to Cecily Myart Cruz. That's the head of the powerful United Teachers Los Angeles Union. Myart Cruz scoffed at the idea of learning loss in a recent interview with Los Angeles Magazine, claiming, It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned, res- they learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup. Holy cow. Uh, now, to this, Annie Holmquist says, To the discerning reader, it's apparent that Myart Cruz could have stated the above much more succinctly by simply saying, Our babies learned propaganda. And in fact, they've been learning that propaganda for many years. Unfortunately, we looked away convincing ourselves that such propaganda was only in big districts like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, not in our own local middle American neighborhoods. She says, for years we kept our children in those schools, convincing ourselves they were safe, that their teachers and the curriculum they were studying were teaching them good things, that those good things would prepare them for living in the free world, able to embrace truth and recognize error immediately. But she says, given the accelerated rate of deception in society, it now seems clear that the schools indeed didn't prepare children to recognize propaganda. Instead, they were the ones that fed propaganda to children, hook, line, and sinker. The late author and historian Richard Weaver observed this phenomenon in a 1955 essay entitled Propaganda. He said, it's tempting to say that the only final protection against propaganda is education. But the remark must be severely qualified because there is a kind of education which makes people more rather than less gullible. Now he goes on to say most modern education induces people to accept too many assumptions. On these, the propagandist can play even more readily than on the supposed prejudices of the uneducated. It is in the independent, reflective intelligence which critically rejects and accepts the ideas competing in the marketplace. Education to think rather than mere literacy should be the prime object of those seeking to combat propaganda. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says regardless of whether our children go to public, private, or homeschool, they will inevitably be exposed to propaganda. So how do we educate our children and our own selves in the process to think and wield the sword against this enemy? Well, she says a few ideas come to mind. First, train yourself and your children to explore both sides of an argument. For example, if you think the election was stolen, examine the arguments of those who agree with you. But also look at sources claiming to debunk such alleged conspiracy theories. And likewise, if you think the COVID vaccine is perfectly safe, and can't understand why people won't take it, well, dig into some of the scientific studies and testimonies of those who have a wary view of it. Knowing what the opposition is saying will strengthen your own arguments and make it more difficult for people to accuse you or your children of being narrow-minded. Second, she says, look for logical fallacies in the information coming out of the television, the classroom, and the Internet. The Fallacy Detective by Nathaniel and Hans Bluedorn is a fun way to introduce children to this subject. Once these fallacies are learned and digested, create a game by seeing how many fallacies your family can spot in a news report or a politician's speech. And finally, she says, expose children to the wisdom of the past. Just as those trained to detect counterfeit never accept fake money but only the real thing, 
so we must only give our children good, high-quality reading material. Now, many of the books written today are filled with fluffy, politically correct drivel. But often books written in past decades are filled with messages promoting traditional values and solid character. Place these latter books in the hands of your children, and they'll soon sniff out and reject woke material. Modern education induces people to accept too many assumptions, Weaver said. So Annie Holmquist recommends buck the trend and actively ensure your children reject the propagandistic assumptions they're taught at school and in society. Now, I want to share a secret with you. And and again, I'm I'm not trying to to come off as uh, I am the smartest person in the room. I assure you, I'm not. But one of the most overlooked resources when it comes to learning how to order your thinking is to dig into books, old books. In fact, I'm going to say it another way. Books that are above your head. Now, that could be reading the Platonic Dialogues. That could be reading the the poetry of Virgil. It could be reading a classic from Mark Twain or, you know, the, the Little Britches series. But there's two things that happen when you do this. One is you... Uh, you expose yourself, first of all, to thoughts that are above your head. You have to actually exert yourself. And by the way, it is real work. The very first time that I sat down to read Plato's Republic, you know, I thought, okay, it's an old book. There's not pictures or anything, but I'm sure, you know, this has been around for a long time, thousands of years. I, I should be able to read this pretty easily. No, I, I seriously, I had to stop a few times because my head was hurting as I tried to understand and, and I'd have to refer to the dictionary, and I'd have to stop and, and uh, you know, make sure I really understood what I was reading before moving on. Wasn't quite the same thing as, you know, hiking up a very steep hill, but um, figuratively, there was sweat running down my brow. It was hard work, but that's how learning goes. But here's what happens when you do that. When you expose your brain to books that are above your, your reading level, and ideas that are above your current thinking level, you start to develop neural pathways in your brain. It's very much like exercise. First time you go out for a three-mile jog, especially if you haven't been building up to it, you know, if you just got up off the couch and said, I'm going to go run three miles, you are going to be one huffing and puffing individual in a very short time. But as you persist in first walking that distance and then jogging part of that distance and then picking up the pace you eventually build up to where it becomes easy. And it's, it's not because the nature of the task became easier. It's because your ability to meet the task improved. And it's the same way when it comes to building your understanding. When you read old books, it's not like you're going to find all the answers to life's questions in something that uh, Socrates was saying in, in one of his great debates. But as you're exposed to the way that he approached things, if you look at the way he asked questions, it will spill over into how you order your own thoughts. And I think this is the big takeaway. This is the thing you want to remember. It's not a matter of just having all that knowledge packed into your head so that, uh, you know, you could go on Jeopardy and wow everybody. It's knowing how to ask the right questions that provides you with a more complete view of whatever it is that you're trying to learn. 
And the way to do this doesn't mean you don't have to quit your job. You don't have to, you know, run off and go to St. John's College and, you know, get a classical liberal arts education. I mean, if you can do that, fantastic. It will make you a better person. But you know how most people have become better people, you know, historically? They found a little bit of time each day to consistently sit down and study things that were above their heads. Something that can be done at your kitchen table, in your study, laying in bed. It's the consistency that brings the result. And I I don't know that I can explain to you exactly how it works other than I can tell you it's something I have put to the test myself, and it does work. So I'm not suggesting you do anything that I'm not willing or haven't been willing to do myself. Okay, here's the second big benefit, though. Okay, so you you, you propaganda-proof yourself. That's one of the good things. And teaching your kids how to do that and to appreciate classics, that's a big thing. Here's the other good side effect that comes from reading old books. They require you to step out of your time and into another person's time period. In other words, the mindset that the the author of those classics had at the time that they wrote them. C.S. Lewis talked about this, and he said that the beauty of that is it becomes a cure of sorts for what he referred to as intellectual snobbery. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Well, the founding fathers, yeah, you know, they, they, they were okay. They were pretty exceptional people, but they sure didn't know everything that we know. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have jet travel. Show me the starship that they built. Show me, show me how they ever went to the moon. And so we get the impression, oh, yeah, they must have been a lot dumber than us. And somehow that gets turned into, hey, everything that came before us was stupid and it was wrong and it was superstitious. But that's not the case. And I was probably as guilty of this as anybody the first time I picked up and started reading, you know, uh, Aristotle or Plato. It was uh, it was quite a revelation to me the complexity and depth at which these individuals thought and explored and and wrote about the things that they were studying. I don't know why. I had it in my mind that they were just going around wearing togas and eating grapes and, you know, orating. But I figured it had to be about primitive stuff. No. I mean, they, they talk about matters of economy. They talk about matters of virtue. In fact, truth be told... They talk about things that are common to human nature, and human nature really hasn't changed at all. So if you want to do yourself a favor and step out of your time and try to see what it's like to see things from another person's point of view, you will recognize that people like Aristotle, he he had a very brilliant mind, but he also had blind spots. I mean, he very openly talked about how, hey, slavery is a natural condition and it's good. Some people need to be slaves because there's work that needs to be done. And, and some of us, you know, I'm he's probably including himself, well, we, we need to be thinking. We need to be the ones out there reasoning and coming up with the, the answers to life's problems. And while we're doing that, thank goodness for those slaves that are getting the work done and keeping the household squared away and growing the crops and harvesting them and so forth. So, yeah, if he had blind spots that big, What do you suppose the likelihood is that you and I have blind spots as well? That's the other advantage that C.S. Lewis pointed out about reading old books. You recognize that as great as these people might have been or as corrupted as they might have been, there were things they just didn't see because they were too close to the situation. 
And if it was true for them, then it's very likely true for us. So we need to be a little less arrogant about how good and smart and, you know, virtuous we are compared to all those dolts who came before us. That's a really negative way to look at things. Instead, look at them, try to understand things through their eyes, how they saw the world, and then build upon the good that they left, because they certainly did. I wouldn't hesitate to refer to the great books of Western civilization as foundational to Western civilization. But they've certainly fallen out of favor. And if you look at all the statues being torn down, streets and schools renamed, and, you know, ideas like words and thoughts being outlawed, it's very clear that uh, there's, there's a very focused effort to dismantle Western Civ and put it on the ash heap of history. Figure out the good, keep it, and build on it. You don't have to embrace the bad. Sorry, Aristotle. I'm not going to agree with you that slavery is good, although, you know, when it's time to clean up the dog's poop in the backyard, I call for the kids. <laughs> maybe maybe that's wrong, but I tell them, hey, you were the guys who said, we want this dog, we want him, we want him, and we'll take care of him. Okay, this was part of our agreement. Now you have to go clean up after him. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. It's a great way to propaganda-proof yourself. It's a great way to propaganda-proof your kids. I can promise you this. If you have kids, or grandkids for that matter, and they see you studying, they see you engaged. In fact, if you talk with them about what you're learning, and you can talk about it on their level, you can, you can bring things up and ask them, isn't this interesting? I never realized this about, you know, whatever, whatever or whoever you're studying. That power of example will have a gravitational pull that will bring them into your orbit and, and could very well, I've seen this happen too, make them uh, want to read whatever it is you're reading. So, you're welcome. I hope it's something that works well for you. Going to shift gears here real quick. Um, I want to talk about what prohibition and vaccine mandates have in common. And I guess for starters, both are ideas that some people consider so good, they have to be implemented by force. Emily Burns from the Brownstone Institute has an excellent article about how vaccine mandates are the new prohibition. And there's a nice little history lesson in this, too. So let's dive in. She says, not all public, not all policies, let's try that again, not all popular policies are good policies. Case in point, prohibition from 1920 to 1933, one of the most visible public policy failures in modern history, was actually wildly popular. And she says there are lessons here. Like vaccine mandates, prohibition was rooted in the desire to achieve a positive social end. One its opponents felt couldn't be achieved without legal coercion. It was widely supported by the science. The goal of prohibition was not to reduce drinking per se. Its goal was to reduce problems deemed to be caused by drinking. Things like crime and poverty, domestic violence, etc. It was here where prohibition failed so spectacularly meaning it exacerbated many of the ills it had hoped not just to mitigate, but to cure. Now, where prohibitionists differed from our current crop of mandators was in their consideration of unintended consequences. Prohibitionists knew that prohibition would have a huge impact on federal revenues, a large portion of which came from excise taxes on alcohol. 
So to address this concern, they first campaigned to pass the 16th Amendment, which allowed for a federal income tax. History tells us there were many more unintended consequences they missed, but they did make some effort. She says the unintended consequences of vaccine mandates, which seek to exclude tens of millions of people from society, don't appear to have been considered at all. What are the costs of forcing people out of their jobs, especially at a time when we have a labor shortage? What are the costs of firing doctors and nurses as we go into another COVID season? Or of firing police officers when the murder rate is increasing at the fastest rate in our history? What are the costs of excluding large swaths of the population from restaurants and other entertainment venues? Are those costs exacerbated when they're borne disproportionately by minorities who are vaccinated at lower levels than their white counterparts in every state in the U.S., especially in Massachusetts, where she's writing from? She says the state of our current debate means that these questions and many more are simply not being asked. Now, Emily Burns says more troubling is that if enacted, these mandates are unlikely to have any impact at all on the goal they seek to achieve, which is stopping coronavirus transmission. The CDC exploited regional differences in seasonality to demonize the unvaccinated and then claimed that high vaccination rates would eliminate the disease. And it was true, in the summer, the South's main COVID season, less vaccinated states like Alabama, Georgia, and Florida did have higher case rates than highly vaccinated states like Massachusetts. But now that our season is approaching, that has flipped. She says we now have significantly higher case rates than all three of those states. More rigorous analysis finds that higher vaccination rates do not reduce cases. They may actually slightly increase them. That's according to a recent study of 68 countries and 3,000 counties. And we see this in real-world data, too. Emily Burns says here in Massachusetts, our cases are currently more than twofold higher than the same time last year. In England, infection rates are higher in vaccinated than unvaccinated groups in all age groups over age 30. Well, isn't that something? Testing protocols that exempt vaccinated people from testing uh, mean that both of those numbers are likely understated. Now, we can argue the degree to which vaccination rates reduce infection. The available data in the U.S. is atrocious, but she says it can no longer be claimed that they will eliminate the disease. In Iceland, for example, which has more than 80% of its population vaccinated, cases are surging. In colleges around the country with close to 100% vaccination rates, cases are higher this year than last year. At Cornell, cases are five times higher than last year at the same time. And this is despite continued indoor masking, weekly testing, and restrictions on socializing and travel. You don't hear much about that, do you? Additionally, Emily says, we do have experience with other non-sterilizing vaccines, by which she means vaccines that don't stop infection. And in no case has a disease been eradicated with such a vaccine. So, for instance, the chickenpox vaccine is a non-sterilizing vaccine. Our vaccination rate for chickenpox is more than 90%. But despite this, chickenpox still circulates widely. So for this reason, many countries, including the UK, do not vaccinate widely for chickenpox, focusing those vaccines instead only on high-risk populations. 
So a mandate this draconian can only be considered when there is or where there is unequivocal public benefit. And that bar has not been met here, not even close. In an evolution typical of our new upside-down world, vaccinated people who are protected from COVID-19 by virtue of their vaccines are now being told they need to be protected from unvaccinated people. That there's copious data available to refute this statement is unimportant. The goal is not to provide useful public health advice. The goal is to stoke fear and resentment till it reaches a pitch of righteous indignation. And would it surprise you to learn that this was tried, too, back in the, in the time of prohibition? In fact, it helped to rise the fuel of the KKK. Now, given the lower vaccination rates in black and Hispanic communities, one would think that might just raise a red flag or two. Emily Burns says occasionally we hear that even if vaccination doesn't reduce cases, we still need to force people to be vaccinated to avoid hospitals being overwhelmed. This is another red herring. Our hospitals were not even close to being overwhelmed during last year's winter wave without a vaccine. During our winter peak, COVID patients occupied fewer than 13% of all beds, and staffed beds were reduced by 11%. Not exactly an action you would take if you were feeling overwhelmed. Our ICUs were so overwhelmed they felt the need to reduce staffed beds by 30%. Now, she says, we will likely have a significant winter COVID surge. That should be the lesson of the summer, that even with high levels of vaccination among vulnerable populations, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths can still surge. In fact, we're seeing this in Europe. And we should be preparing for this, not pretending it won't happen due to our state's high vaccination levels. In Massachusetts, we currently have 50% more COVID patients hospitalized than the same time last year. And deaths are roughly equal. In hospitals, in order to reduce non-socomial or in-hospital infections, we should be trying to identify those people who contracted COVID-19 and have natural immunity, as these people are significantly less likely to become infected, as in 6 to 13 times less likely, and hence less likely to transmit COVID-19 to vulnerable patients than a vaccinated person, person who was never infected. But instead, we're firing these people if they've chosen not to get vaccinated. Despite scores of studies showing that vaccination of previously infected people provides no additional protection and puts recipients at risk for higher risk, actually, for adverse events. So to the extent that there are at risk people who aren't vaccinated, she says we should attempt to convince those people to get vaccinated. But mandates and coercion are not the way. And the sad truth is that our public health officials have so damaged their credibility with their constant stream of noble lies that doing this will be very, very hard. But she says, here's what could work and for whom. Before we go around trying to convince unvaccinated people to get vaccinated, maybe we should first try to understand their reasons for not getting vaccinated. And among those reasons could be, I've already had COVID, or I don't perceive COVID as a threat, or I'm worried about the fact that there's no long-term safety data from the vaccine manufacturers or concern about an adverse reaction to the vaccine. Some have religious objections. Others, I would be in this camp, distrust government and public health. And some believe masks provide equivalent protection. Emily Burns says naturally acquired immunity appears to be both more durable and more effective, especially at reducing infection. So it hardly seems necessary to focus our efforts on persuading these people to get vaccinated. 
She says, earlier I noted black and Hispanic people are less likely to have been vaccinated. It's also worth noting they've been infected at far higher rates and thus have far higher rates of natural immunity, 30 to 50 percent higher than whites and more than twice the rate of Asians. And she says we shouldn't be focusing our efforts on the young and healthy. The FDA eliminated the risk of COVID-associated death for a healthy 30-year-old, or they estimated it, rather, to be, this is the risk, 0.0004%. One in 250,000, substantially less than their risk from flu, car accident, suicide, drug overdose, and a whole host of other things. So the five actions that she suggests that would narrowly tailor our efforts to reach those groups who are at risk but remain unvaccinated would be this. First of all, remove the threat of mandates. That's a very big objection for people, and rightly so. Take away the threat, and you remove that objection. Take away the, the mandate, and where they're not being forced, okay, there's no cause to object. Secondly, The CDC acknowledging and apologizing for repeated lies, overstatements, failures, politicization, and general incompetence. We're not stupid. We've seen where they were wrong. If they would admit it, it would go a long way toward restoring trust. Third, providing comorbidity-based relative risk. Whether it's from laziness or incompetence, the CDC has not provided age and comorbidity-based risk stratification for covid They still want that one-size-fits-all approach. Also, she suggests, as number four, drop the my vaccine protects you rhetoric. We can already see it's not true, as people who are vaccinated not only get ill, but also are capable of spreading COVID. And finally, be honest about masks. Tell the truth about the protective effect and and, and tell the truth about how it's not the catch-all that many have made it out to be. You'd still get some people who would object, but at least you would be honest with them. Pretty excellent stuff here. That's from Emily Burns at the Brownstone Institute. Brownstone.org is their web address. I would even encourage you to sign up for their emails. They really have some great information on this subject. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. <laughs> 